turn to the book of Romans real quick. And we're not going to work through any passages. I just want to show you something. I want to start with a mystery. I want to leave you with a mystery. The book of Romans at some point, Lord willing, I would love to preach through it someday. I studied under a pastor years ago named John Piper, who some of you will know that it is, and he preached through Romans, and it took him over nine years to preach through Romans. <laughs> I'm going to aim for more like nine months when I do it. Um, when I got to his church, he was in like Romans 4, and when I left his church five years later, he was in like Romans 9. Um, I'm not going to do that, but Romans is, by fairly common consent, probably the best single place in the New Testament to understand the entirety of the Christian faith. Um, it, it's Paul's magnum opus as he kind of explains his gospel and his understanding of what the gospel, what the Christian faith is about to a church that he did not plant and that he's never visited yet. And, uh, and I want to share a mystery with you. This is, if you want to study Romans at some point, here's a great question to ask. And I would just say in general, this question, if you ask it and then pursue what the answer is to it, is a great way to approach a lot of the challenges and the nuances of the Christian faith. So here's the first passage, Romans 3. Very, very famous. I did a, a sermon in the last month and a half or so on sin. This is one of our passages. Very, very famously, starting in Romans 3, verse 10. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside. Together, we have all, every single human being, become worthless. And then I want you to listen to this line. No one does good. That word good in Greek is agathos. No one does good. Not even one. Okay, now if you have ever heard a presentation of the Christian faith, you grew up in church, that's probably familiar to you. We're all sinners. Go to the end of Romans, Romans 15. This one is less familiar, and in many churches, I think would be deeply resisted as, as a statement of, uh, of truth, even though Paul says it explicitly. Paul starts the letter. Now, in Romans 3, if you remember, Paul has not told us anything about Jesus. This is kind of the dark backdrop to the gospel, the lostness of human beings, the, the night, the darkness, before the dawn of the gospel kind of um, burns its light into the world, into our lives. And yet, after, what, uh, 12 chapters, 13 chapters since then, Paul is talking about what Christ has done, what the Holy Spirit has done, the formation of the church, the way the church lives. And the last statement in the body of the letter of Romans is verse 13 in chapter 15. That's the last like theology statement he makes. And it's just may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our big theme today, you may abound in hope. Now, everything from verse 14 to the end of the letter is all the conclusion. It's like greetings. It's not the letter proper. And I want you to just listen very carefully to the first thing he says, not just to people that he said chapter three, verses 10 and following to earlier, but to a church that he did not start, to a church he's never come to, to a church where he doesn't actually know most of the people there. He says this, I myself am satisfied, the ESV says, literally, I'm confident about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are filled with agathos, with goodness. You are filled with goodness. Here's the puzzle. How do you get from Romans 3, no one is good, to Romans 15, I'm confident that all of you, simply because you're Christians, even though I have no idea who you are, I don't have any relation with you, simply because you're Christians, I'm convinced that you are full of goodness. How do you get from Romans 3 
to Romans 15. And there's a lot of Christian traditions that would functionally deny what Paul says there in Romans 15. There would be, I often call it wretched man theology. There'd be this idea that the only difference between a Christian and non-Christian is we just don't get in trouble for doing the same stuff anymore. We're forgiven, but we're as awful, as wretched, as self-centered as anybody else is. And that ignores the transformation of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to give you what I think the answer is without justification right now. We'll go into it. I think the one word answer of how you get from Romans 3 to Romans 15 is Pentecost. I think that's the one word answer. How you get from no one is good to you are filled with goodness. I think the answer is Pentecost. And so let's go to Acts 2. That's what we're going to look at today. This is um, many ways to think about Pentecost, by the way. Um, if you heard the story in Acts chapter 2, if you know coming in today something about Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is the main player here. Um, and yet, I also want to let you know that this is not the sermon in our Grammar of Faith series on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to obviously talk about the Holy Spirit today, but somewhere later down the line, I'll do a whole sermon on the Holy Spirit. This is not it. Today is about the event of Pentecost, not overall the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, even though there's overlap. Um, one way to think about Pentecost, which why do we even use that word? If you see Acts chapter two, when the day, verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, literally when it was fulfilled, when the fullness came, they were all together in one place. We'll talk about what this word means. Um, here's a very simple way to think about it for now. Um, if you consider church history, everything that has happened in the last 2000 plus years around all the nations of the world since Jesus lived and died and rose again and ascended to heaven, I would be very confident that every Christian should be able to say this, Pentecost is the most important event in church history. It is more important than the Protestant Reformation. If you're a Protestant, you're like, rah, 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 this is a good moment. If you see, um, if you're a Catholic and you see the Protestant Reformation as the great morning lament to have, you should still have joy because of Pentecost. The calling of the Apostle Paul, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where all of us Gentiles don't have to become culturally Jewish in order to become the people of God, Christians. These are all important moments. Um, so many great moments in church history as the gospel spreads, as God works in the world, as Augustine and so many others say amazing theological things. Pentecost will forever until Jesus returns remain the most important event in church history. And so we need to know it. Um, every racial and cultural group represented in the room now, um, the more you're in touch with your heritage, with your background, you know that to be Korean or to be Nigerian or to be Italian, you have to know certain events in the history of your culture, of your race. And for us as Christians, you have to know what this event means. Not just that it happens, but what it means. And if you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 12, did you notice that after all of this weird stuff starts happening, Tongues of fire, strange wind, people start speaking in languages that they didn't know before. Somebody stands up in verse 12, we don't know who it is. They're all amazed and perplexed. They're saying to one another, what does this mean? That's my goal in, in the next few minutes. What is this moment about? What is Pentecost about? And, and so let me also add two very short but, but connected claims on the one hand, you cannot tell the story of Jesus without talking about the Holy Spirit. When Jesus is born at the beginning of the Gospels, how is he born in this miraculous virgin birth? We just confessed it in the Nicene Creed. He becomes incarnate through the Holy Spirit. When he starts his ministry 
and he's baptized, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down on Jesus. When he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to be prepared for ministry, the gospel writers are getting, it was the Spirit who drove him into the wilderness for 40 days. Everything Jesus does in his ministry for three years, he says in Matthew 12, in Luke, everything I do, I do by the finger, by the hand of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is doing this through me, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here is one of my favorite examples. Um, you probably all know that in the Gospels, at one point, Jesus walks on the water. And maybe you've heard sermons, or maybe you've thought this before, that like, there's a great argument that Jesus is gone. Because like a human being can't walk on the water. And so here's the divinity of Jesus. The problem with that argument is what happens next. Jesus is out there walking on water and he turns over to Peter and goes, come on, come on. And Peter gets out in the water and he starts walking for a while before he sinks. And when he starts sinking, Jesus does not say, oh my goodness, Peter, I'm so sorry. I forgot for a second. I thought you were the fourth person of the Trinity. You're just a human. Get back in the boat. Instead, he critiques him for his lack of faith. Here is another very big claim that I'm not going to flesh out today, but I will when I get to the Holy Spirit later in the series. Everything Jesus did during his ministry, he did as a human being dependent on the Holy Spirit. Even the crucifixion, the Spirit is involved. All four Gospels narrate the death of Jesus as the moment he gave up the Spirit as he died. The resurrection is the moment the spirit raises him back from the dead. The ascension is the spirit taking him up to heaven. And Pentecost is, did you notice in verse 33, it's easy to miss in Acts 2. It is not the father who pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. It's not the spirit taking initiative to be like, oh, it's time for me to go down. We are told that the risen, exalted Jesus at the right hand of God, he having now received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, poured out this spirit that you yourselves are now seeing and doing. You cannot tell any moment of the story of Jesus without the Holy Spirit, or else you will misunderstand every moment of the story of Jesus, which is why um, probably the great heresy in church history that we fall into today as Western Christians is what's known as docetism, the idea that Jesus is really God but he only seems to be a human being. We read the Gospels and we see a weird alien God dude doing crazy stuff that we couldn't possibly participate in. And yet we saw it last week with the ascension. Jesus goes up into heaven, he pours out the spirit. And he says, you will continue to do the same kind of things I was doing and you will even do greater things than I did. Everything Jesus ever does in teaching and healing raising people from the dead and, and turning the loaves into more loaves, the fish into more fish is all done through the Holy Spirit. And if you can't tell the story of Jesus without talking about the Spirit, the whole book of Acts reminds us you cannot tell the story of the church without the Holy Spirit. If you try to interpret church history just sociologically, just economically, just in terms of human experience and emotions, you will profoundly misunderstand what church history is. Again, this is why in the Nicene Creed, the formation and the mission of the church is under the Holy Spirit. Church history is the product of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so this is very, very crucial for us. And so John Stott in his commentary on Acts 2 um, says, that there are three sections, and I think it's right, that what you have first is the event of Pentecost is laid out for us in the first 13 verses. Then you have, starting in verse 14, and for most of the rest of the chapter, 
going down to verse 41, you have Peter explaining what it means. So there's the event, there's the explanation. And then that last paragraph, which we didn't read fully, but we'll end with, is the church is now formed and they're all living together with joy and with peace and with radical generosity towards each other across all of these cultural divides in different languages. And that's the effect of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 2, we see the event, the explanation, and the effects. And I just want the next few minutes to be the answer insofar as this is from the Spirit, insofar as this is accurate, to the question, what does this mean that this happened? And so I'm going to um, just very quickly over the next few minutes walk through five things that I think we have to say that Pentecost means. Um, and I'm just going to pick up things that, that you see in the text and in phenomenon that you see happen. The first one is that Pentecost is about Jesus. And what I mean by that is last week we looked at the ascension. And, and Nancy just read us a passage a few minutes ago from John 14. John 14 through 16 is Jesus talking to his disciples in the final night of his life. And there are two themes that dominate those chapters. I'm leaving, I'm going to the Father, and the Spirit is going to come down, and I will return through the Spirit. And so the first thing, if you go back to Acts chapter 1, I also said this briefly last week, but because the book of Acts is an important story, an important book for us to know, to know our own identity, our own mission, our own story, I want to say this again. Look at Acts chapter 1, the very first verse. In the first book, O Theophilus, and this is the Gospel of Luke, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit, through the apostles that he had chosen. And I said this last week, for those of you who are here, this will be a repetition, but I think this is important to, to think about. Um, the, the title above your book in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is added by editors much later on. That's not part of the manuscripts of the book. Um, Acts in Greek is praxis, the things the apostles did. I think that's a bad title. I don't think the main players in the book of Acts are the apostles. There's lots of stories in Acts where the 11 apostles, 12 apostles have nothing to do with it. A lot of people would say the book of Acts is about the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That's a better title than the Acts of the Apostles for sure. But I actually think the best title is if the Gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach, the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach through the Holy Spirit he pours out via the apostles and the church. That the main agent in church history is not us. The main agent in church history is not even the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit himself is a delegate, an executive, a vice regent acting on behalf of Jesus. The main agent is still Jesus. And in Acts 2.33, as I said, even though he's off the scene now, even though he's now in heaven at the right hand of God and he's not on earth, he is still acting and he's pouring out the spirit. Going back to John 14, keep your finger in Acts 2. If you want to go back to John 14, there are two verses that Nancy read back to back that I want to draw your attention to this morning. The first one is verse 16. Jesus says, once I go away, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. And depending on what translation you have, that could be advocate, that could be counselor, that could be comforter. 
It's a legal word that we still use for lawyers today every year, but paralegal, this is paraclete. It's someone who comes alongside somebody else as an ally, as an advocate to help, um, to, to help them get to where they're supposed to go. And Jesus is often in John's writings called the paraclete. He's the one who helps us. He's the one who comforts us. He's the one who counsels us. He's the one who advocates for us. And yet, throughout John 14 through 16, Jesus now hands that term to the Holy Spirit, and it is a very little word here, and it is very easy to miss, but there is a profound insight into our faith in this word. Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. But that connects the Holy Spirit playing this role to the role that Jesus once played before he ascended into heaven. Here is a very, very simple way to put it. Why has Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost upon his people? A very simple way to put it is this, to continue in our midst what Jesus was doing during his lifetime in the flesh. Jack Packer, in a book called Keep in Step of the Spirit. If you want to read one thing on Pentecost and on the Holy Spirit, this would be, not everybody would agree because there's lots of great books on the Holy Spirit. This is my favorite, most books that's influenced me the most, Keep in Step with the Spirit, Finding Fullness in Our Walk with God by J.I. Packer. It is so insightful. And here's what he says. Jesus, the original paraclete, the original comforter, the original counselor now continues his ministry to the world through the work of the second paraclete, another paraclete. The key thought un unlocking a true understanding of the Spirit's ministry in the church is that the Holy Spirit mediates the personal presence and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And so where the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit is communicating to us Jesus's presence and continuing Jesus's powerful work among us. Last week, when we talked about ascension, I said there's two ways in which I think Jesus means this fantastic, unbelievable claim in John 16, where he says, guys, it is to your advantage that I leave. We are now in a better position than Peter and John and James were when Jesus was in the flesh with them. And I said, one is that the work of Jesus is now deepened. It has a deeper impact on us because of the Holy Spirit. And this is a big theme in Pentecost in Acts 2, and now has a wider impact because Jesus could only reach his 12 disciples or whoever he was with in the moment there. Now the Holy Spirit is spreading to all the nations of the earth. And, and I said this last week, it is a great reminder every Sunday we gather, there are hundreds of thousands of churches gathering around the world today. And Jesus is at every single one of them. Jesus is at every single one of them because of Pentecost. And Jesus is doing things here today, this morning among us, that are make what he did in the flesh with Peter, James, and John kids play compared to what he's doing now. And so Jeb Hacker goes on to say that this is central to understanding the spirit, that even though the spirit is poured out in Acts 2, and you can go back to Acts 2, even though the spirit is poured out, as soon as the spirit is poured out, Peter opens his mouth and he starts talking about Jesus. And the early Christians go around, they talk about Jesus. They don't talk about the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out to continue the ministry of Jesus, to continue to point to Jesus. But there are two, I think, great dangers among those of us. And, and many of you will know this. The fastest growing probably religion in, or religious group in the world today 
and certainly among Christians, is Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism takes its name from this, and Pentecostalism is, in a nutshell, the observation, rightly, that we have fallen into the habit of being like, man, the book of Acts, that was nice when the Holy Spirit was still around, but like, now we're just remembering that. Now we're just remembering stories about Jesus, and Pentecostalism is the conviction that what's going on in the book of Acts should be going on today, which is absolutely true. Every group, not just Pentecostals, every group falls into errors and falls into overemphases. And a couple of the dangers, if you do emphasize the Holy Spirit strongly, which we should and we need to and we will. So this is not about critiquing Pentecostals, it's about let's make sure we don't do this, is either to disconnect the spirit from Jesus. So that becoming a Christian is one thing, but anytime you just get excited emotionally, that's just the spirit, even if Jesus has nothing to do with it and you disconnect the spirit in Jesus, the spirit and Jesus always go together, or, and this is always the, the danger when you get really zealous about your faith, as seeing Jesus as the ABCs of the Christian faith. And you're all Christians if you're here. If, you're, if you believe in Jesus, you're all Christians. But then there's this second elite stage that only some get to through the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, every single one of you is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. This is not a second elite stage. This is not 201, whereas Jesus is 101 in Christianity. And so here's what J.I. Packer says. And this is a great um, illustration. You ever notice when you say the Empire State Building, always different lights depending on what day and what time of year it is. The Empire State Building will be lit up because there are floodlights shooting those lights onto the Empire State Building. And you can't actually see the floodlights. And Jeff Packer uses that as an illustration. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He says the Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role is to fulfill what we may call a floodlight ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are placed in such a way that you don't actually see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are just meant to see is the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it more fully. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on our Savior. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Holy Spirit is standing behind us throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands in front of us, facing us. The Spirit's message, man, would I love for us to, to internalize this. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him, see his glory, listen to him, hear his word, go to him, have life, get to know him, taste his gift of joy and peace. The Holy Spirit, we might say, is the ultimate matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker, whose role it is to bring us and Jesus together and to ensure that we stay together. As the second paraclete, the Spirit leads us constantly back to the original paraclete. Very quick litmus test here. Somebody hears the commands of Jesus not only doesn't do them, but breaks them and says, because the Spirit's telling me I can do something else, is someone who is not operating in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit calls us to submit to the Lordship of Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to experience his presence. 
And so it is in Acts 1, we didn't read it today, but you'll probably remember from the beginning of the Gospels that John the Baptist, when he baptizes Jesus in water, says, I'm baptizing you in water. When Jesus comes, he will baptize you in fire and in the Holy Spirit. Future tense, will, and that happens at Pentecost. This is Jesus's baptism of the church in fire and in the Spirit. And so let me end this part with, with a question, a challenge that, that I want us to come back to every once in a while. Um, here's kind of a sociological take on, on, on Christianity. A sociologist is, you know, or an alien race, whatever, is looking at us and describing what they see. And like, well, sociologically, culturally, here's all these interesting dynamics about Christians when they get together. And a theologian named John Davis says this in light of Pentecost. Would a sociologist of religion who visits a typical Christian worship service on either side of the modernist, fundamentalist, liberal conservative divide find clear evidence that the participants believe and act as though they were conscious, conscious of actually being in the presence of the living God? Would they perceive that that's what we think is happening here? Or would they be like they get together to remember positive stories that happened long ago in the past? or to believe things intellectually, or to engage in activism to make the world a better place, as if that's the only or the main thing. Um, and, and because of my style as a preacher and my style as a Christian, this will always be naturally left to ourselves, a weakness of us as a church. And so I just want to say this now, and I need to say more often, yes, there's an intellectual aspect of Christianity. Yes, there's an activistic aspect. We should go out and serve the poor. There is an irreducibly experiential aspect of the Christian faith. And it cannot just be about what you believe, and it cannot just be about what you do. It needs to be that through the Holy Spirit, we are communing with God and with Christ all the time and being transformed by his grace. And so the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, is poured out by Jesus. Um, and so here's the second one, is as soon as Peter opens his mouth, and you can probably see in your Bibles, if you have Acts chapter 2 open, a lot of long blockchains of Old Testament passages. Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. As soon as Peter starts explaining, what does this mean? He starts talking about the Old Testament. And he starts explaining the Old Testament. So one of the great questions about this moment, going back to verse 1, is assuming that Christianity is true. God exists. Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on this day 2,000 years ago. Here's a great question. Why did God choose the day of Pentecost for why this happened? And if you don't know this, Pentecost is not a day that was named because of this day. Pentecost was a day that already existed in the calendar before this day. Pentecost in Greek, remember Pentagon, building with five sides in here there. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50th, for 50th. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament festival, there are three great festivals in Israel's Old Testament life. There's Passover, celebrating, remembering that God delivered us, liberated us objectively from slavery in Egypt. The third and final feast is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, where you remember that God led us through the wilderness. And the middle feast is the, fe the Feast of Weeks, or the Festival of the Harvest, depending on the translation. And it celebrates both the giving of the law but it's also literally an agricultural, like it's literally when the harvest comes in and the fullness of what was planted earlier comes in. 
And I don't think it's an accident that this is the language. So I want to suggest there's at least two related reasons that this is the day in the calendar that the Spirit is poured out. First is that in Acts chapter 1, we're told it's 40 days after Jesus' death and resurrection that he ascends into heaven. If you read between the lines, some time has elapsed between Jesus' ascension and then the disciples figure out who's going to replace Judas in chapter 1, and they're praying for a while. And this, I think Luke wants us to hear that, that Acts chapter 2 happens 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, after his resurrection in particular. And just as the Passover, we're going to do this in a few minutes, the Lord's table, after the sermon. And the Lord's table is Jesus re-signifying, deepening Passover. At Passover, Jewish people get together and they eat this bread and they drink this wine. They also have lamb. If you ever wonder, like, I'm always still really hungry after this, it's because the lamb is not on the table anymore. <laughs> the lamb has already been slain. And so we are actually eating of the lamb by faith as we take these elements. But this is our, this is our great Passover moment as Christians. Jesus' death and resurrection, just as in the Old Testament, 50 days after Passover, the Feast of Weeks celebrates the fullness of God's blessing to Israel because of his liberation of them objectively in the Passover. Pentecost is what happens 50 days after our language. Of the, the central word is language of fullness and fulfillment. Here is, um, for, for the sake of time, I don't want to get off track and do this too much. I'll come back to this when I do the Holy Spirit later on in the series, but, but I want to be a bit provocative right now. A lot of Christians read Acts 2 and the New Testament in such a way where here's a difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians have the Spirit and non-Christians don't. And I think that's a mistake. I think that's 100% a mistake. In fact, if you really want to hear a wild claim from me, I think your dogs and your cats have the Holy Spirit. Anything that has life and breath has life and breath in creation because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power of God that gives vitality and animation to anything that has life in the universe. And so I said this earlier, David is praying in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit away from him. David has the Spirit before. The Spirit is regularly coming upon people. Go back to John 14 real quick. Here is, I think, the background of the festival of the harvest here. At Pentecost, Jesus is not pouring out the Holy Spirit where the Spirit was absent before. He is pouring out a fuller experience of the Spirit. Put it this way, if, if you are a human being, even if you don't believe in God, even if you hate Christianity or you just can't take it seriously, you have the Holy Spirit in your life keeping you alive. In fact, what death is, is the Holy Spirit, our spirit given from God being taken away from us. At Pentecost, the spirit is, to use a very crude analogy, remember you're drinking water at a restaurant and the, and the waiter comes and he tops off the water and he fills it up again? That's Pentecost. It's God topping off the, the running on empty glass of the spirit because of sin. And so I'd like to use an analogy that the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a human being is very parallel to the image of God. What I mean by that is this. If you say non-Christians are not in the image of God, only Christians are, I think that's heresy. 
If, on the other hand, you say sin doesn't affect the image of God and being a Christian doesn't deepen your experience of it, that's also a mistake. If you are a Christian, there is a distinctive experience of the spirit that you have, but not in comparison to non-Christians not having it at all. Not in comparison to you not having it all. Peter and James and John all had the spirit operating in their lives before Pentecost. And so go back to John 14, the very next verse that Nancy read, I read verse 16 before, Pentecost is about Jesus, the original helper, the original counselor, sending another helper, another counselor. Here is in verse 17, the best single description I know of in the Bible for the difference between the spirit and creation in the Old Testament and the spirit in the church after Pentecost. Jesus says at the end of verse 17, or I'll actually just read it. I'm going to send another helper, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither um, sees him nor knows him. But you know him, the spirit, because he dwells with you and he will be in you. That little phrase there, there's a world of theology packed into that one verse. Before Pentecost, Jesus says to the disciples, the Holy Spirit is present tense with you. But then he also says future tense, and one day the Holy Spirit will be in you. The Holy Spirit is in a lot of situations in the world outside of the church, but he indwells Christians. He indwells the church. And just so you know, and this might sound like, oh man, Nick gets really loose with this stuff, but I really mean this. That's a metaphor. If right now, if, if, if one of you is a Christian and one of you is a non-Christian, and I know this is creepy, but if we cut you open, it wouldn't be that we found the Holy Spirit inside of the Christian and we didn't in front of the, inside of the non-Christian. This, this is a metaphor. But it means that for a Christian, the dominant, controlling, primary characteristic of their life is that the Holy Spirit and not sin is what is ruling, which is why Paul can say to every Christian, I'm confident that you're filled with goodness. Even though once I said about you, there is no one good, including you, including you, including you, and now you're filled with goodness. A non-Christian has the Holy Spirit keeping them alive. But the power of sin is the primary dominant reality. And so at Pentecost, God is fulfilling what he began in creation. He's filling up what he began in Israel in the Old Testament as the promise of the Father. And so um, it it is not that Christians experience something that non-Christians cannot understand at all. It is that, as G.I. Packer says, that at Pentecost, God enhances the degree of power and influence the Holy Spirit has among his people and brings it to fullness or begins to bring it to fullness. So third thing is this. Um, um, The last three points very quickly are going to be the three phenomenological elements you see in the first paragraph of Acts 2. Fire, wind, and tongues. All three of these elements are crucial for understanding Pentecost. The tongues that come down in Acts chapter 2, we're said that they're tongues of fire. Jesus, sorry, John the Baptist said earlier, I am just baptizing you with water. When I baptize people, I baptized Taekwon in earnest and Ashley and Adam um, a couple of months ago on Easter. When we baptize other people, all I can do is sprinkle water on your head. That's all I can do. But Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit, and that is connected with the baptism of fire. Another conversation for another day. Fire is a major metaphor for what happens when God comes down and acts in scripture. And there are two main connotations it has. Judgment, burning things up so that they no longer exist. 
and purging, cleansing, refiner's fire, we just sang about. And those two things are related because the difference is your response to it. If you turn away from God, the fire of God ultimately evaporates and burns us up. If we turn back to God, it cleanses us and refines us. And here, and, and, and here is a, a, another way to put it, a question. The prophets, and we're going to do a study this summer on the prophets with another church, storefront church on Wednesday nights. Would love for you to be involved with that. We talk about, even on the last night of Jesus' life, when he does the Last Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah talks about, God is going to make a new covenant with you someday in the future, and it will not be like the old covenant. And so here's another good question to parse through a lot of mysteries in the Christian life. What exactly is new about the new covenant? What do we experience that Israel in the Old Testament did not experience? And let me tell you a couple of wrong answers that... Christians often give grace. Whereas they had to earn their salvation by obeying the law in the Old Testament, we're forgiven and saved by grace. Grace is not what's new about the new covenant. And it's also not, they had to obey rules. We just follow the spirit and we don't have rules. That's not what's new about the new covenant. No rules anymore. The single thing that is new about the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 is that whereas God gave his law to his people on tablets of stone in the Old Testament, he has now written it on our hearts. That the central newness of the new covenant is the transforming fire of the Holy Spirit. That is, that Paul would have said about himself, he would have said about David, he would have said about Abraham, he would have said about Moses, that they were enslaved to sin, even though they had faith, even though they honored God in many ways, and in the new covenant, we just sang a song in Christ alone. In the future, we sing this song a lot. Many churches do in, in our culture. There's two lines that I want you to really zero in on in the future. And as Jesus stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. And so if Passover is for the people of Israel, the reminder that we were once slaves, but we have been liberated. Pentecost is the moment when we remember that you are no longer a slave to sin. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are liberated, not from the presence of sin, but from the power of sin. It is no longer the main thing in your life. Um, at the beginning of the bulletin, I found this this past week. Here's the quote that I want you to look at. This is from Ignatius Hazim, who only died a decade ago. I had never heard of him before this week. He was a central theologian in the Eastern Orthodox Church in Syria and, uh, and in some, some other areas in the Middle East where he was kind of the bishop over it. And what a powerful line. Um, I think the way the kids would put it is, this will preach. Um, he says, without the Holy Spirit, God is distant. Christ is just in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simple organization. Authority is domination. Mission is propaganda. Worship is the summoning of demonic spirits. And Christian action is the morality of slaves. None of this works without the Holy Spirit. None of this works without the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the fire there is the sense of being purged from the power of sin and transformed into people who are, there was a line that we sang in our first song today, I give up my old flames. 
for this new fire that has come. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. It burns the old idolatry away and it begins to deepen a passionate love for God and love for our neighbor. I often say this, Christians often say this, Peter is a different human being in the book of Acts than he is in the Gospels. And the difference is the Holy Spirit, the fire of the Spirit coming into our lives. When you, as you get older, I hope each of you can already see this to some extent. I know at least many of you can. But as you get older and you look back on what you were like before you were a Christian or, or before you began to really grow in your Christian faith, and you know, so like I used to be much more angry. And now there's like, not perfectly, but there's a real gentleness now compared to what there used to be. I used to just deny criticism and just resist it and be defensive. Now I'm not actually able to hear it, to appreciate it, and to learn from it. That is always the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives over the long run. Um, there's some, I'm going to come back to this next week on a very different topic. Um, I'm going to mention uh, one of the most famous books in church history, Augustine's Confessions. And Augustine's Confessions, one way to think about it is it is him as a 70-year-old man looking back on the last 55, 60 years of his life with one aim, trying to trace what God was doing in all of those years. And that is an important practice for us to learn. That is, he's trying to discern, how is the Holy Spirit working in my life? How is God changing me? How is he making me more aware of my sin and of his grace and of the, the, the way that I need to love my neighbor? And so the fire of the Holy Spirit reminds us that you must be born again. This is experiential. This is not a primarily about signing off on ideology. This is not primarily about go out and serve in new active ways, although that's all good. Um, one way that you will often hear it put, and I think it's, it's memorable, it's helpful, is in the people of God, there are no grandchildren. You are not a Christian because your parents were. You are not a Christian because a lot of Koreans are Christian or a lot of Nigerians are Christian or because a lot of Italians are Christian. You are a Christian because the Holy Spirit is in your life or you're not a Christian. There are no grandchildren in the people of God. Fourth, the wind. The wind blows through. In both Greek and Hebrew, the word for wind and spirit is the same. Um, the wind blows through, and if the fire is more focused on changing us internally, the wind is more getting us moving. It sends us out as soon as the spirit is given. And here is something we need to guard against. Christians who begin to appreciate the Holy Spirit begin to yearn for the spirit's power and presence when we gather together and worship, when we pray, um, often can go astray in this way that they begin begin to be almost self-centered in the way that they desire the Spirit's power in their own life, but they become navel-gazers of their own experience. And they actually forget their neighbors, and they forget the world, and they forget mission. The Spirit is given to empower us for mission. There's not only fresh fire that transforms us, there's fresh wind that gets you off your butt and gets you into your neighbor's lives. Peter gets the Spirit, and he opens his mouth in boldness and starts talking about Jesus. They go out and they serve the poor. They give their money away. They, they talk about Jesus. They, 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 they connect with one another as a new family. Gordon Fee says the spirit is God's empowering presence, which is why um, Bonhoeffer, who I quote all the time, said, a church is not a church that is forgotten that it exists for the sake of others. We exist for the sake of others. We don't exist so you can have a cool, positive, subjective experience on Sunday mornings. That's not what we're here for. 
And so finally, number five is tongues. Um, the gift of tongues is very controversial, especially since the rise of Pentecostalism in the early 1900s. We'll talk about that someday. One of the things that is unfortunately often missed is that when in Acts 2, and then later on in the book of Acts, and then especially 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, whenever tongues are talked about, I, I hate this translation, tongues. It hides what's there. Is this the word for languages? It's not a different. It's, it's, if you can speak in Spanish, you have the tongue of Spanish. If you can speak in Italian, you have the tongue of Italian. When it says they speak in tongues here, it's not saying that they're doing jibber-jabber. It's saying that I don't speak Italian, and somebody who's Italian all of a sudden understands what I'm saying. I can't speak Hebrew, but all of a sudden, and, and now I'm not saying that that's exactly what the, the gift of tongues is later on. We'll talk about that another time. But here, the main emphasis with tongues is that people who cannot otherwise understand each other are brought together by the spirit. If you are a conservative politically, I guarantee you that your perception of liberals is deeply distorted. And if you are a liberal, your perception of conservatives is deeply unfair and distorted. If, if you're white like I am, my wife is Korean American, there is a lot I can't really fully understand about what it means that she's a Korean or that she's a woman. Across differences, communication is so unbelievably difficult. It is virtually impossible in a fallen world. It's often pointed out, Luke doesn't say it explicitly, but it's here, Pentecost is the great reversal of the Tower of Babel. Pentecost, the Tower of Babel is the moment where human diversity becomes a problem in the world, where our differences set us against each other. So we can't see each other for who we are. We can't appreciate, we can't work together. This is super random. But I've been thinking about this. I did not grow up in the church, but very early on when I became a Christian, I began to notice that among very conservative American Christians, we have a lot of weirdnesses. But one of the many weirdnesses we have, and, and some of you will know this, if you've ever read, which I do not recommend at all, but if you know what the Left Behind books were, um, if you ever read weird Christian websites that are connected to prophecy and politics, is conservative Christians in America often have a paranoia about the coming rise of a one-world government in the future. Like the UN, probably Satan, right? <laughs> Stuff like that. Now, I think all of that is stupid. But there's something underneath that instinct, which is legitimate, even though I think it gets put in many ways, which is it's an insight that the only banner underneath which all human beings can be united is Jesus. Not capitalism, not communism, not liberalism, not conservatism, not democracy. When George W. Bush tried to bring democracy to the Middle East, that was a profound mistake. You cannot unite humanity ultimately under anything except the name of the crucified risen Jesus. Now, because it's Jesus, we don't do that through coercion, but we should have chastened expectations of what kinds of reunification of fallen, divided humanity can come. This is the moment that it begins finally, what Revelation gives us the end game vision of. One day, every tribe, tongue, and language and culture of the world will be united. Not because they're not diverse anymore, but because those differences are now appreciated and enhanced rather than division. And the only thing that can finally bring them together is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not only the bond that connects us to Jesus vertically, the Holy Spirit is the bond that connects us to one another. In the speech that Peter gives in Joel, and I'm going to end with this, 
I'm going to pour out verse 17 of chapter two. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just your sons, but also your daughters will prophesy. Not just the rich kids, but also the slaves, both male and female slaves, not just young people, but old people, not just old people, young people. Pentecost is the democratization of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was only given for the most part to men in the Old Testament, only to the aristocratic offices like king and prophet and priest and only to Jews, not to Gentiles. The Holy Spirit is now given to all human beings if they come through Jesus. And so this is why the church is under the Holy Spirit. And so we didn't fully read to the end, but in chapter two, the last paragraph, verses 42 to 47, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship with each other to the breaking of bread. They did the Lord's table and they did meals together and the prayer all came upon every soul. And again, Arturo read it, all of these different racial and cultural and geographical areas of the world that people come together from in Acts 2. And that will get extended and extended in the rest of the book of Acts and throughout church history. All of them are together in the midst of all of their profound differences. And all came upon every one of them. Wonders and signs are being done to the apostles. And all believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to anybody else in the community who had need. I've said this before, I'll say it again in the future. That's not communism, that's not socialism, that's not capitalism, that's a family. That's what a healthy family looks like. The Holy Spirit makes a family out of divided humanity. A new family, one day the only unity in the world will be that in Christ and all of our differences we are together, the Tower of Babel, has begun to be reversed. And so if you are asking, am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Is this a church where the Holy Spirit is working? I would encourage you, and I'm going to end with this because we'll do another sermon on the Holy Spirit later on. If you're paying attention to what I'm doing today, I think one of your frustrations will be, this is interesting. You haven't told me a single thing about what to do to experience the Holy Spirit more. I will in the future, I promise. For now, I want to say, if you are asking, "Am am I experiencing God's Spirit? Is this a church that's filled with God's spirit? Don't primarily log on to our website and see how orthodox our creed is. Don't primarily navel gaze and be like, how intense were my emotions this morning? Don't primarily look at, are people voting less Republican and more Democrat now? Or less Democrat and more Republican now? Instead, look at Acts 2, 42 to 47 and say, is that look like us or not? Because that's the effect of Pentecost. The effect of Pentecost is Acts 2, 42 to 47. A bunch of people who would otherwise never give each other the time of day are now living like a family, transformed by fire, moving out by the fresh wind of the spirit and talking relentlessly about Jesus. That's what it looks like when people are filled with the spirit and we live for the rest of the story in the wake of Pentecost. And so we're going to go to the Lord's table here, but this is a reminder that we are not primarily remembering things that happened in the past. We are participating in things that are still going on today. And so let me pray.